walk by uh, the front of the stage, and they get bigger every year. And um, I remember, I, time goes by so fast. Um, it was uh, a little over 16 years ago that we came here, and my oldest was six months old, and then he started to run by here, and then my daughter ran by here, and, and now my son Isaac, believe it or not, um, is turning eight this month. You know, I remember when we laughed when we found out that he was coming. It was a big surprise to all of us, and, and um, pretty soon he's not going to run by here. But uh, I'll tell you what, it's been a, um, a privilege being a part of this church over the years and, and um, learn a lot about myself, a lot about... Um, scripture and a lot about how God has made his people and a lot of failures and a lot of successes and, and just thankful to be a part of a group that, that hangs with its pastors and pastors that hangs with this family. It's just a great, great experience. Um, one of the things that I experienced this last week with my, with my youngest, he's the only one I can talk about, so just give me a little bit of room, right, without embarrassing my older ones. But, you know, this last week was a cold week, as you know, you know, frosted every morning. My car's parked outside, so take 15 minutes just to, you know, chisel the ice off. And, um, and I got the pleasure of taking my youngest to school, which I don't norm- normally do. And so we uh, scraped the ice off the window, and we packed up in the Bronco, and we drove over to K.I. Jones, and, and uh, we got out. And he said something to me he's never said to me before, and that is he looked up and he says, Dad, you need to hold my hand because we're walking across the ice, and I don't want to slip. Right? I'm like, man, I've never heard that. Um, my, my kid actually wants help from me. He wants to hold my hand, you know. And so he took his hand. It lasted for like 20 feet on the sidewalk. That was it, and then he let go. But there was just this little moment of pleasure where I'm like, I still am kind of his little hero, and it just kind of felt good because that phase doesn't last all too long, you know, before they want to be independent. They don't want your help. They think they can do it by themselves, and even if they can't, they think they can do it by themselves and oftentimes screw stuff up. And, you know, that's the way they are, and that's the way I was with my father, and, and I know that's true of, of probably almost every human in here is that, that uh, we have this impulse to be independent, and some of that's just natural um, and healthy maturity, and other parts of that is just human ego and pride wanting to, to you know, be strong and do it ourselves, and um, luckily in this moment, my, my son was able to say, hey, Dad, I need some help walking across the ice, and it was just a cool little moment, but you know that impulse um, that is in all of us to... to Oh, avoid being weak or thought of as weak or feeling weak um, or needy um, is something that's in all of us, and, and uh, we don't like the idea of exposing the fact that we're, um, well, frail, fragile, oftentimes needy, that we feel emotional weakness and so forth, especially it goes against our human nature, nature as males, females as well, but it seems to sting us a little bit more as, as men. Um, but it's that same impulse um, not to want to feel or be weak um, that leads some people, not everyone, but some people to, um, to avoid or get rid of the whole God thing altogether. Um, I'm pretty sure you've heard it said, I know I've heard it said by a number of different people and a number, number of different times that the religion is for the weak. I bet you've heard that before. Religion is for the weak. I know I have. Um, in fact, um, to quote one famous personality, I believe it was governor at the time, Governor Jesse Ventura, he said that religion is um, a scam and a crutch for the weak-minded. That's what he said. Pretty uh, bold for a guy who wrestled with the WWF, you know? But religion is, for, is a sham for the, and a crutch for the weak-minded. Now, apart from the weak-minded and sham thing, which I, I don't agree with at all, I've thought about the idea, is religion for the weak, a lot. So what I do, you know? 
um, an integral part of uh, the Christian faith. And, you know, I, I have to say, apart from the sham thing and the weak-minded part, I'd have to say, yes, it is. That uh, Christianity, this, um, our understanding of reality is, is in, in fact, for the weak. And I, I also think that um, any level of honest and intellectual reflection on life would lead anyone to that conclusion. Um, you know, think about how we all begin. Now, this is an obvious one, but, you know, we begin in complete dependence. Um, coming out of the womb. We can't do anything for ourselves, completely dependent on those who um, are God has placed over us like, like parents, you know. Um, we lack the physical strength, the intellectual know-how, the coordination to climb out of our crib, walk up to the fridge, open it, and make a ham sandwich for ourselves. And even if by some miracle we could do that, we couldn't eat it because we didn't have teeth. We were born weak. Now, that, uh, that's an obvious one, but as you grow, as we grow, we grow physically strong, um, our physical coordination and our mental faculties, we start getting knowledge, we start synthesizing and analyzing, growing. You realize in almost every, not almost, in every direction we look, we're confronted by human weakness. Politics, for example. The powers that be have and will pass laws that you don't disagree with. In fact, you might find immoral. Let me ask you, how do you, this is just a non-political thing, it's just how do you really feel about your ability to change the big wheels that are turning? I know we should probably say, well, every man makes a difference, so we need to vote, which is true, and, and we should. But from what I read and what I understand, uh, American people have lost sense of, of ownership. They feel helpless in these big wheels. That is, for all practical purposes, we're, we're weak when it comes to changing or turning these big wheels politically. Let's just move on from politics to marriage. I don't mean to diminish those who have experienced the horror of divorce, but the fact that the divorce rate is so high is uh, an expression of the fact that we can't often fix it, that one or both parties gives up because we're not strong enough. That's marriage. Well, let's talk about parenting. You know, how many families, I know that you know a lot of families who've had one or more children who have kind of walked off the reservation, either in a kind of a path of self-centeredness or a path of self-destruction. Parents have tried everything and anything possible to get through and to reach and to love, and, and just going through the list of every possible avenue of trying to, to help change that child's heart and turn it back, only to realize that we're helpless when it comes to the hearts of our kids. I mean, even trying to get your Little ones to eat vegetables in the morning or in the afternoon is, is, a, is an act of divine miracle sometimes. Unless you want to choke them and shove it down their throat. And that's, that's parenting. There's just, you realize there's this weakness. And then you look at your own soul. If we're so strong, why are some of the most intelligent and most wealthy people spending thousands and thousands of dollars every year on therapy and psychological counseling? Because they've come to the realization that they need help. That they can't fix themselves without depending upon other people. It's an admission of weakness by both believers and unbelievers. Or you, as Christians. And no, we don't like to talk about our, our sin propensity, but all of us have them in particular areas, and some of them are different. Some have a propensity to spend more than they should. That's your impulse. Or eat more than you should, or drink more than you should, or speak in anger in the way that you shouldn't. And when those times come, when your desire 
enslaves your intellect and you do what you know you shouldn't do? How do you feel? Completely weak, enslaved by our own desires within. Politics and marriage and parenting and even our relationship to our own soul. And then what about the end of life? I mean, many of us are going to end up back where we started. Back in diapers, hate to say it, but that's where you end up. And you know what? You're not going to be able to feed yourself, probably. You're not going to have the mental uh, cognitive ability or the physical strength or coordination to get up out of your bed, go to the refrigerator, and make yourself a ham sandwich. And even, even if you did, you wouldn't have teeth to chew on it. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the most helpless thing of all, and that is watching the people you love taken by death, which no one avoids. So you ask me, or an honest intellectual look at life, are we fundamentally weak as human beings? And I think the answer, unless you're either ignorant or arrogant, is to say yes. Now, what do we do with that? It seems to me you can go a couple different directions with that. You can deny it and say, we're strong. Lie to yourself. Jesse Ventura is going to pass away at some point. And he's going to realize that he couldn't out, outman death. That's not a slam against his personality. It's just to say the truth. You can say you're strong and lie to yourself. The other is you can admit weakness and just kind of become a pessimist or a cynic about it and say, you know what, that's just the way it is. Live with it. Get over it. That's a real happy place to be. Or you can receive. That's too cliche of a word for Christians. You, you can embrace, believe, um, bet your life on a God who has worked tangibly, concretely in history, in time, place, with people with names, to show that he is about, all about, the work of meeting us in our weakness in every way. And a God who in his love and grace is going to restore humanity to its proper and glorious place in the universe as resurrected beings in a regenerated and renewed world. That is a message. That's the screaming message of the scriptures is that God meets us in our weakness and he is going to deliver us from our weakness. And the question is, do we as people receive that message? Do we receive the historical workings of what God has done? And it is historical, and that's one of the things you can't get away from. A lot of religions are built on myth or poem, but this is not. It goes back to reality and concrete history and places that you can still go and see, the stones that were laid by people named in the Bible. But people have this one or two responses to this working of God that has been revealed and recorded for us in Scripture. One is the rejection, of course, the other is the acceptance. And, and that's not a new thing. Back at the very beginning, when Jesus first arrived, you see both of these responses. All the way back to his birth. And that, that, that comes to light, really, in this, this, this section of Matthew. We've, we've already looked at chapter 1, and don't let me, I don't mean to diminish what chapter 1 said. I mean, it, it basically, Matthew said that, Jesus is the culminating center, and there's no way of overstating the culminating center of all of the hopes and desires of the Old Testament, of the recovery of God's blessing, the recovery of his kingdom, the, the strong arm of his salvation, and God's presence living amongst his people. I mean, those are the gargantuan hopes and desires of the Old Testament, all of which he says come to fruition or reality in this person called Jesus, the center of the Bible, center of creation, center of salvation. But in chapter 2 of Matthew, he records... Um, something rather surprising, 
perhaps disturbing um, and ironic. Because the news, for the first time in, chap- in, 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 the, in the Gospel of Matthew, for the first time goes public. That is, it, it comes to Jerusalem. But not on the lips of a rabbi, a teacher, or a priest. But foreigners from a long ways away. And that itself is a surprising irony. Here is the story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice he doesn't say, they don't say, where is he who shall be crowned king of the Jews? But rather, they already acknowledge that he already is king of the Jews, a startling statement for the reigning king Herod. Continuing in uh, middle of verse 2, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And here he's going to cite, um, they are going to cite Micah 5.2, a prophet that lived centuries before Jesus ever came, specifying this is going to be the location. And here's the quotation from Micah 5.2, verse 6. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst, among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. As I said, it's kind of surprising. We don't see it as surprising because we're so used to it. But, I mean, the very idea that there, this, this, this caravan of, of foreigners comes into Jerusalem, we like to think of them as three wise men because there's three gifts, but the text doesn't say there was just three. There might have been and probably were more. Here's this caravan of, of, of wealthy foreigners that come into Jerusalem um, saying, hey, where's the king that's born king of the Jews? That itself, like I said, is kind of surprising and ironic. The first public declaration of the birth of Jesus from the mouth of foreigners, not from a priest or a rabbi. Well, you know, talk goes around town, and pretty soon it makes its way up the chain of command till the top man, Herod, hears and Herod is a number of things. He's a, he was a brilliant politician. He's an amazing builder. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll see stuff that he built still to this day. It's still amazing. But he was power hungry and he was enormously paranoid. So he hears this and he's like, wait a second. Is there a legitimate king here? That's going to be a threat to me. And so he calls together a little council. Council of the best minds of the day. The guys who were astute in the scriptures, well studied. And says, where is this, this child going to be born? I want to know because he has plans for later. Not to worship him, but quite the opposite. And they say, well, Bethlehem. That's what the scripture says in Bethlehem. They know the truth, but it's interesting. Look at the response. I underlined it. The response to this news on the lips of foreigners, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I understand that part. He would be troubled. Paranoid. And all Jerusalem with him. Like the people that should have been excited and, and, and at least curious are troubled. Or another way of translating it, disturbed. And notice, no one goes. No one goes. I mean, if we were to transport ourselves back there, I think knowing what we know now, we'd be like, man, what's the fastest camel, fastest donkey, I'll run there. I mean, it's a 5K, basically, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It's so close. Just to walk. You could walk that in under, under an hour. Go check it out. But nobody goes. 
The people you expect to be excited and embracing are the very ones who are indifferent. They don't go. They know. But what this tells us is that their heart is so far from what the Lord is doing. It's become so hard. The ones so close don't get it. And yet people from probably 900 miles away here, and they have spent a lot of money and time caravanning across the deserts to come and see the truth of this. The ones who were far coming, the ones who were near, are indifferent. Now this tells me something. It's an observation, the possibility that those closest to Jesus are not always the ones who get Jesus. The ones who are closest to what God is doing are often the ones who don't get what God is doing. That's obviously the case here. Now, we don't know for sure why, but I think this is kind of an omen, if you will, for the Jewish people. Like a little preview. They're indifferent now at his birth, but as he grows and he starts to speak the truth, starts to claim authority and exercise authority over demons, over sin, and over death, it begins to point his finger at the arrogance and self-righteousness of the powers that be. Well, their indifference is going to turn into hostility. Their indifference at his arrival is going to end in crucifixion. At the end of his life, they're going to put him to death. Because you know what? Jesus doesn't fit their box. Or let me restate for any Arians out there. God didn't fit in their box. He chose to come in a way and do things in a way that they just simply could not understand, did not uh, conform to their expectations, therefore they threw it out. That's at the end. And you know, it's just an interesting little trivial side note. When these foreigners ride ride into town and they say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? That phrase, king of the Jews, that appears again. Not at the beginning of his life. But it's hanging on a sign at the end of his life, on a cross. Here, king of the Jews. As I said, I think this is just an omen, an anticipation of how he will be treated by his people, beginning with indifference and ending in murder, crucifixion, right here. Why would they be indifferent to this? As I said, I think Jesus didn't fit their box, of course. Um, But part of that was, and tied to that, is when Jesus came onto the scene, there was a lot of spiritual pride Uh, arrogance on the part of the religious of his day. And the basis of that pride, and you you pick it up all through the Gospels, you kind of have to piece together the background, is that they place their confidence not in the grace of God, but in the gifts of God's redemption. That is, they believed that had a leg up on other people because they had the scriptures, their Old Testament law, because they had a massive temple standing behind them, because they were Jewish by birth, right? That is, they were sons and daughters of Abraham, so they felt a sense of entitlement, not based upon God's grace or promises, but based upon the fact that they they had a physical lineage, a physical temple, and a physical law they could hold in their hands, which is why there's there's this continual confrontation of this self-righteous spirit. And in that self-righteous spirit, they couldn't see their true need or weakness. That's why Jesus says on a couple of different points, he said, I didn't come for the well. I came for those who knew they're sick. But I came for those who were lost. And the leadership of the day didn't see themselves as lost, didn't see themselves 
in need. They saw themselves in need of a political uh, deliverance. I mean, who doesn't want that? Everybody, I'm probably, I'm not going to say what I was going to say. I mean, that's easy, right? Like everybody in our country wants to vote for something that will somehow lift the burden of what's taking place. Everybody feels that. But what they don't feel is the, the thing that we're deep. Deliverance from this, this inner thing that, that, that keeps us separated from him that you can't do anything about. That's a thing called sin. I don't think they saw themselves as sick or in need or, or weak. And as a result, they had this blindness of spiritual pride and arrogance and felt entitled because of what they had and who they were. And I'll tell you, that, that same kind of sickness, um, that self-righteous, arrogant sickness that was experienced back when Jesus came, is very much still alive. It's really easy for us. It's, I know it's easy for us because it's easy for me. It's easy to start the Christian life with the awareness that I'm a sinner and I'm weak and I'm in need of, of something and you hear the message of the gospel and you're like, yes, I can't believe that you would love me. I can't believe you would forgive me and keep forgiving me and be so patient with me. But then over time, that, that sense of gratitude and wonder at our weakness and his grace can turn into a sense of... of, of um, I don't know, entitlement or the fact that I, I deserve this? So that we, we kind of lean on the fact, like said a prayer, or I read my Bible, or I attend church, and therefore I kind of have a leg up on other people. And that shows itself oftentimes in how Christians speak of or relate to those who don't believe like they do or don't act like they do. A sense of we have it and you don't. Or a sense of judgmental spirit that is oftentimes communicated by the church that we're the righteous and you're the non-righteous with a sense of entitlement. And I'll tell you what, um, it's the same disease. Same disease. I, I really believe the Lord would have us look at our lives through two lenses at all times. One of the lenses is to, to Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who know they're poor in spirit? Who know without God we're bankrupt. We have nothing to offer. And that's not just for the beginning of the Christian life. That's for the duration of the Christian life. I'm poor. King David said in one of his psalms, he said, and he had a palace and he had position. If anybody was something, he would, that, would, that would be him. And yet he said, inquire. No, incline your ear, O Lord, for I am. And then he says, poor and needy. He knew his state before the Lord apart from grace. I'm nothing apart from you. That's the one lens, and it never must go away. Otherwise, Christians do become spiritually proud and therefore resisted by the Lord. That's what it says. The Lord resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and continues that sense of humility before God and other people where we don't actually look down on them as inferior beings because we know that we're sinners the same as they are and weak and fragile and saved by grace alone. And that other lens, of course, of knowing that while I am weak and poor in and of myself, that in Christ I am rich, in Christ I am loved, in Christ I am forgiven, in Christ I belong, in Christ I have an inheritance, then the only things that we're entitled to, we're entitled to because of Jesus and Jesus alone, not based on anything we've done. I have those two lenses, and I'll tell you, I, each morning I wake up, I, that's an overstatement, it isn't every, every morning, it be a lie. 
Most mornings, I wake up, one of the things I pray for as I'd like, Lord, please. I know how much my, my, my soul wants to exalt itself. Take ownership for things that you have done. Will you please, if there's any sliver or log of self-righteousness in my life that thinks I'm deserving of anything apart from Christ, then, then will you just purge it from me and humble it and break it because I don't want it in my life. And I do that because I know my propensity. It's the propensity of the human heart to grow proud when God does things in your life. God had done things in the people of Israel's life, and they grew proud as a result of it, which is why one of those, you know, just constant through the Scriptures, God opposes the proud but gives grace to those who know that apart from God they're weak, but in God they're strong. So here you have this indifferent response, I think, because of arrogance. And I think underneath indifferent, if you find yourself in a place of indifference towards the things of Christ, it's probably a result of arrogance, though you may not necessarily make that connection right away. But contrast that, their response, the religious response. By the way, interestingly enough, it's not just the people who are hardcore atheists who are unwilling to admit they're weak. Oftentimes, it's the religious arrogance refusing to acknowledge that we're weak. That's where they were. But then you shift gears in, in this story. And here are these foreigners. I haven't really talked about them, but they're, they're, they're called wise men, or kind of a transliteration of the original Greek word is magi. You've probably heard that before, magi. We get the word magic from it. These are men probably from the area of ancient Babylon. There was a large Jewish settlement there after the exile. Israel spent some time there. And as a result, these magi, who were probably a priestly caste of people educated in particular in the art of astrology, um, they probably dabbled and, and were able to have access to the Jewish scriptures, the prophets. I, I, I imagine, and this is a complete speculation on my part, but Daniel the prophet made it to the second command in the, in the, in the empire of Babylon, and he was a Jewish man, and he wrote a book. And I would venture to say that he made an impact there, and some of those religious people read his writings and read other writings in the Jewish Old Testament, which is the only way they could have understood that there was a coming king who's going to be born of the Jews. But one thing you have to take note of is that these guys, the, these magi, they are astrologers. I didn't say astronomers. Big difference between an astronomist and an astrologer. That is, these were men who were trained in how to discern time, season, and futures for, uh, foretelling by reading the stars. It's a, the astrologists. We still have astrologists today. And in the Old Testament, and I should include the New Testament, which is completely against sorcery of any kind, the whole idea of astrology is strictly forbidden because it's a form of divination, of witchcraft. And yet, and here's the irony, again, this isn't just a sweet little story about three wise men. The Lord, it's as if the ones who are three miles away don't get it because they can't see. But the ones who are 900 miles away on the blacklist in the Old Testament somehow make this 900-mile journey or so to see the one who was born, who was promised from the Scriptures. Blacklisted. Magi. Keep that in your head. To put in modern categories, and this is why this story would be troubling to someone in the first century. 
Imagine some of the first people that the Lord brings to witness his son, his king, are the tarot card readers and the palm readers. You'd a Christian be going, what? That's a little disturbing. Like, the people here in our little church, they weren't invited, but those guys were. Here's the rest of the story. I'll read it. Verse 7 says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, or the magi, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me words, that I too may come and worship him, which is a complete lie. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. People have been perplexed for centuries about what the star was. Some think, think it, was, it was Halley's Comet, apparently had a near flyby back in that window of time. Others think it was a convergence, and this is where astronomy can backtrack and tell us where these things were, of a convergence between Saturn and Jupiter, or some others have suggested it's a, like a supernova where there's some bright light for a period of time and then it eventually burns out. But you know what? The way that it's spoken of here, of it going before them, and then coming to rest over the place gives the intention that this is no ordinary astral body. It's something special that's tied to the guidance of this particular group of men. Are you following? In other words, the idea is that this is some kind of a luminary light that the Lord himself provided to guide these men to his son. Now, you might say, well, that's a little bit too supernatural for me, Dan. It's like, you know what? The whole assumption of the entire Bible is supernatural. A God who, like, creates everything out of nothing. Hello, that's majorly supernatural. You know, when God speaks through a donkey, a prophetic word, that is supernatural. When God stops the sun in the sky, when Joshua commands it, hello, supernatural. When he guides his people by a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, hello, it's supernatural. When Jesus makes water into wine, hello, it's supernatural. When he raises the dead, which has never been done, Supernatural. So for him to provide a little luminary guidance to these pagan sinners, to bring them over the boundary of their paganism, to see his own son, might be supernatural, but a small thing. But that's exactly what he's doing. That's just, and it's just so like the Lord, you know? When you see it in that light, the arrogant are left out. Meanwhile, the Lord reaches over the borders of paganism into a group of people who don't deserve it and know they're on the outside. And he makes special invitation to them to come. And the interesting thing is that without validating astrology, and this is not a validation of astrology, this does tell us that the Lord is using means they know to get their attention. It's like meeting you where you're at. They spoke stars, and the Lord's like, all right, I'm going to send them a message. And he sends them a star, and they follow what they know. And then they end up seeing the real light, who's Jesus. Now, isn't that just, I mean, let your heart fill with that for a second of, 
I mean, that's the grace of the Lord. That's, that's a God who, who reaches beyond those boundaries that we, we tend to think, well, God's not going to love them. It's like, wait a second. He brought these astrologers to his son. He reaches across the boundaries of all kinds of things, homosexual boundaries, all of those things. God goes over and says, I'm going to draw people to myself to meet my son. And it's a miracle because I, I, that's, that, that, that's the kind of God he is. And, and in fact, this too is a preview. This is a preview of, of the fact that ultimately the Jewish people would reject their king. But others, to the ends of the earth, would come and they would adore the king. People who are on the outside being brought on the inside. And, and that's the grace of the Lord. Like God draws pagan sinners, outsiders to worship Jesus in humble joy. I just love their response. The words are so, are so telling. It's like, you know, when they, they saw the star, it says they rejoiced exceedingly. After a 900-mile journey, I would be excited too. But it's not just that they rejoiced. It's that they, the text slams four words together. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like that's, that, that compress, is compressed to give us the sense that they were bubbling over, overwhelmed. Um, their, their voices couldn't contain the excitement and the joy of, of being invited this long way. Outsiders being brought to a first-hand front seat position of seeing the birth of a king. What an amazing thrill and excitement. They're joyful. And when they get there and they see the child, it says, and they fell down in a place of humble um, worship, adoration, and they offered him tribute as the king. What an amazing contrast. And I think that contrast is both a warning and a reason for praise. The warning is of spiritual arrogance and indifference. If we find ourselves in that place where we have grown to feel like, well, because I'm a part of a church, I'm therefore automatically on the in with the Lord, we've got to take a second look. The only reason you're on the in with the Lord is because you trusted in Christ alone. That's it. Um, and where there is indifference, it's probably a manifestation of your own arrogance and your lack of sense of desperation of your own heart apart from God, that we need fresh grace daily, every day. That's a, a warning. I tell you what, I think the Lord, and I'm just going to say this out loud, I think the Lord is far more angry at religious arrogance than he is about the sin of homosexuality. And so that's just like, be careful. That's the warning. On the positive side, you just see the heart of the Lord. You know, this is the heart of the Lord. He's not a, an angry ogre. He's someone who says, I, I got an invitation. I'm sending to that guy. Nobody's ever going to expect that. that. That magician over there, that sorcerer, and send the invitation to that guy. I'm going to draw him. And you just sense the heart of the Lord of drawing lost sinners to himself. And not just to himself but to see me experience, as I said last week, the crown jewel of the scripture, and that is Jesus Christ, who is the only answer to our weakness, the only one who can restore what's been broken, the only one who can mend, you know, what's been torn, is him. You're here today, and, and you're one of those people who are on the outside, and you're just checking out this Christianity thing. I just hope you hear the heart of God in this, that like, he specializes in coming over into your territory and saying, come with me. Show you his son and experience the life-changing reality of who he is in your life. And I pray that this Christmas, we too, just pause, consider the warning side, but also 
rejoice in the fact that every one of us was beyond that borderline, you and me. And God made a special invitation to you at some point and spoke to you and said, come. And you followed, not because you were good, but because he is good. Amen? It's just good. Lord, you're good, and you were gracious, and you were loving. And we're just thankful for your scripture that both warns and also celebrates your heart, your grace, your son. I pray that you would just grant us that, that spirit of wonder and also sober awareness that we all too easily drift into a kind of self-righteous and smug attitude towards others and toward your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.